You're listening to The Economist Asks. I'm Anne McElvoy. And this week we're asking, can a vaccine bring theatres back from the brink? The world scientists are on course to produce an immunisation against the virus that causes COVID-19. The British and American governments have said that vaccinations could start as soon as December. So what does that mean for theatres who've been trying to survive with little or no income and few live audiences since the spring? It wasn't till about June or July and I started to walk around and see all our theatres dark, albeit we remained optimistic and we left our lights on, I started to struggle. Sonia Friedman is a West End and Broadway theatre producer who set up her own company almost 20 years ago and has since produced well over 180 shows, including The Book of Mormon, Jerusalem and Dreamgirls. She also brought the Harry Potter story to the stage, one of the biggest grossing shows in global theatre history. J.K. Rowling continues her story on stage, where the magic is real. I've never fought alone, you see, and I never will. Now Friedman is planning to open a new show in London in December, called, fittingly, The Comeback, if restrictions allow the curtain to rise. Back in May, she said that theatre stands on the brink of ruin. With an effective COVID-19 vaccine on the horizon, though, does she feel more hopeful? Sonia Friedman, welcome to The Economist Asks. Thank you for inviting me. You've worked in the, the theatre since you left school at, at 16. Is this pandemic the first time you haven't been able to work? Yes. I actually started working in theatre when I was 12 or 13 as dressers and backstage helping out. I started really, really young. But it's the first time as an adult, if you call yourself an adult at 16, that I haven't been earning a living in theatre. And it's the first time in my life that there hasn't been a show running, that I've been stage managing or being on a crew for. So it's it's been a real shock to my whole system, my whole body, my whole mental health as well as, obviously, my profession. How does it feel to go to, from having multiple uh, productions either on the go, coming on, things you're considering, or looking at the commercial viability of, to not having anything on? Well, the first few weeks, one was in a state of uh, survival mode, shock, crisis management, and disbelief, but also belief this was temporary. March the 16th, when we had to shut our theatres in the UK, prior to that, I'd had a show running in New York and San Francisco and Australia and Germany, amongst other places. And San Francisco had already shut down. I was ahead of it by about a week and a half from most people in, in the UK industry. So I was beginning to prepare And when it happened on March the 16th, I called a company meeting, socially distanced by that point, we were already doing that, and just said, this will be a few weeks. Go home, we're all going to be fine, it's going to be a few weeks, there's no way we won't be back. We just have to to figure out how we're going to get through what I thought was maybe maximum 12 weeks. And I think mentally, 
I was okay at that point. I believed we had a plan um, as an industry and as an organisation. And also, because we had to shut down, I had to shut down personally 18 1-8 productions across the globe. There was no time to think about it, to take an external aerial view of what was going on. It was working from 6am in the morning till 2am, right the way through, without a break, non-stop on these Zooms, which I hadn't even heard of the word Zoom, as I'm sure no, most people hadn't. We felt that come June, we'd all be back. No idea why we thought it was just going to be 12 weeks. I think it, it was that was the maximum we ever thought it could possibly be. Can you put a, a number on the cost to your business of the pandemic? Well... I can put a number, I'm gonna, I've written this down, I can put a number of how what, what the box office losses have been or the potential box office that we have not earned from all the productions that would have happened. And actually, this is just six months worth of, of box office, which is 90 million, 90 million. And how much of that is offset by any funding package or alleviation zero none of it zero i have been and i still am heavily involved in all the lobbying for the cultural recovery fund which was wonderful for the industry my company received nothing because of the criteria first and foremost because i'm a commercial company it's an anomaly and the the number one criteria to have access to the funding is that your organisation had to prove it was going to fail. And as an overall organisation, I couldn't prove we were going to fail in this period because I had just enough reserves to keep my some of my staff. I've had to make um, many redundancies within my own organisation and company, but I couldn't fulfil all the criteria uh, that would allow me to have access to the Cultural Recovery Fund, whereas actually several commercial producers have. What do you say then to investors? Do you just kind of say, well, hang tight, sooner or later this will be over? I mean, just, just if you can, if you kind of lift the, lift the curtain, see what we did there, uh, a bit on, on how a big, successful global company like yours goes about this when you, when you seem to be having losses that are sort of unimaginably high. Let me be clear about the, the, the 90 million. That's not a loss. No, it's what you would have revenue you've forfeited. Yeah. Um, even though I'm the, the umbrella company, they, every production has its own set of investors and will have shut down with its own set of reserves or not. So there are some certain productions of mine which shut down, which had just enough reserves to mothball. So there are certain productions of mine that I've literally just mothballed, like Leopoldstadt, which are just sitting there waiting, that are not costing me anything at the moment, apart from t the smallest amounts, just, just to ensure that we can get back up and running. And then there are other productions which are, are massive, like Harry Potter, and Book of Mormon, where in the UK we're going to, we're still fighting for the insurance. And in New York, we are trying to find our way back. We didn't have insurance in America. So that's a much bigger problem. And so we're trying to raise extra funds now to ensure we come back. We would only be 
raising against the existing capital or finding more money to come back if we believed once we come back there is going to be a strong return and response and the audiences will come back for that particular work. So so let's talk a, a bit about that. What do you think the realistic horizon is for the return of theatre? We, can we might just focus for, for ease, at least at the outset, on that London, the West End and Broadway, very sort of connected, not least through productions like yours. What, what do you think we're, we're looking at as a, a reasonable expectation, given that, as you say, the the first horizon of... 12 weeks as, as long past. We're in second lockdown in the UK and still uh, most theatre is absent. If we were having this conversation six or eight weeks ago, I'd have said I have no idea and I'd have been possibly pessimistic. But with the news of the vaccine, the several vaccines that we're hearing about and the belief that rapid testing may, the moonshot testing, may emerge by early next year. I think I think there is a a new sense of optimism certainly in the UK. Well, so can I ask you a a question then let's look to the the British context where in May I think you predicted that around 70% of performing arts companies were closed by Christmas if there wasn't a government rescue package you were talking about the UK there there has been a rescue package uh, just under 1.6 billion pounds that is uh, from the cultural recovery fund so what do you think the outlook is now much more positive I mean that 1.56 billion didn't all go to theatre but but um I think one of the the biggest concerns I've had about the Cultural Recovery Fund, if I'm going to be a little bit critical, is that it's been focused on buildings, primarily about making sure buildings don't close. It wasn't necessarily about the work that goes on in the buildings. And my biggest concern about this fund is that there's no point saving these buildings if you haven't got any work to go in these buildings. I mean, I think it's just a fact that the the staff have been protected through this fund, but the freelance workforce have not. They've been absolutely left out of any scheme, particularly those that are limited companies, lighting designers, set designers, actors, obviously, directors, so many of them, thousands and thousands of them haven't been protected by any of the schemes. What about the the US? This year you plan to have Mean Girls at the August Wilson Theatre and The Inheritance, a big success in, in London, by Matthew Lopez at the Ethel Barrymore Theatre, both in, in New York. What happens to those productions and how similar or different is the, the, the transatlantic approach? Well, um, The Inheritance um, has now closed sadly. It was always going to close and it closed. So that will not be returning. Although, as I talk, it has 11 Tony nominations, which sounds very weird to be in a Tony campaign during a pandemic. Um, Mean Girls, it has a very strong insurance policy, so it may be okay. It may be strong enough. The question you have to ask for all these shows, is there going to be enough audience the other side of it? to sustain them all. That's where it was interesting that you mentioned the vaccine, which just, I'm sort of belatedly thinking about that comment, which made it sound like you really didn't feel that much would change 
until then. But you are also preparing, I think, or have been preparing to, to open a show called The Comeback in London before the, a vaccine could be available. So just help me out there. There are some of us who um, really believe we've got a responsibility and a duty to try and provide some Christmas entertainment. I'm doing this, this small two-hander comedy at the Coward Theatre. Once we come out of the national lockdown, so we, we, we are heading towards Christmas with the hope that we can deliver some work for audiences so that they can get out safely with family or just in their bubbles of two um, and just, just experience something live. And whilst they're not going to make any money, and indeed they may even lose a tiny bit, they could just break even, given that most productions, most shows, most plays, whatever the scale, need between 65 and 80% capacity, financial capacity, to simply break even, so to cover your running costs each week, um, to recoup the, the, the restart costs, Harry Potter, I'm sorry, I'm just throwing numbers at this, but it is The Economist podcast. I think you're safe. You're in a safe space on numbers with us. <laughs> um, the Harry Potter sh- suspension and restart costs will be over £3 million. Plus a running cost of a between, oh, I mean, depending on where we can mitigate, about £350,000 a week. And the top gross potential in that theatre in London, the Palace Theatre, for that production of Harry Potter, is about £550,000. So, it, you know, when it opened, it was, it was clearing about £200,000 a week profit. It was doing very, very well. So Harry Potter, if we're going to if I'm going to use this as an example to continue this conversation, um, cannot play to less than 70 or 80 percent capacity to break even and maybe help pay a little bit towards the the restart costs that. Yeah. OK, so until quite understandably, it is safe to have full auditoriums and we won't get full auditoriums until there is a public confidence that it is okay to go to those theatres and whilst it's never been said explicitly I do not believe we are going to get that public confidence until the government, Treasury and DCMS have a strong belief that the world will will be on the road to recovery and UK will be on the road to recovery before they allow us to open our doors. So let's broaden out and talk a bit about what's happened to theatre in the meantime. Um, We've seen various attempts at digital offerings and that could be streaming of of past uh, big works from the the national well, there's one man two governors is a good example of one that was streamed early but there's also more experimental work i've just been looking at what a carve up the an adaptation of a, a political satire by jonathan co which has got a much more sort of feels like it was made for the digital environment do you like any of these things well if you can see my face now i'm screwing it all up well look we started the conversation by saying i've only ever worked in theater it's all i know I'm not sceptical, but I am, I am worried. There is this um, narrative 
being formed, that streaming, digital, Zooming is a replacement for theatre. I will always fight for the right for live theatre. If, however, the streaming and the digital and the filming comes from a result of something which was at some point live or will be live, its DNA is in live theatre, then I'm all for it. If it means that work becomes more accessible to people who couldn't otherwise get to see that live piece of work. I mean, I've had many, many approaches during the lockdown. Would I be interested in creating a whole range of work for streaming companies or TV companies, which is basically filming plays? So in other words, would I, would I like to become a TV film producer of plays? The answer is absolutely not. Not if it's not rooted in the live experience. There is an interesting question, Sonia, about whether it changes theatre. I know you would like a, re a return, well, uh, very strongly advocating for a return to the, to, to the joys and thrills and spells of live theatre. But is it a sort of moment when we will see some changes? Some theatres may not come back. We're definitely going to see some changes. I think we're going to see changes in, in and I'm thinking about how I change, which is about how we make our work more available, more accessible, how... I've started that journey of understanding how we can make our work live in other medium, but so long as it is equally as good or different or as exciting or as real or as visceral as the live theatre experience, and it's not secondary, you wouldn't feel you're missing... You wouldn't feel that you are watching a theatre capture. You mentioned mental health uh, earlier in our conversation. You talk about isolation and despair and sort of reflect something that we've talked a bit about in the show in the last few weeks. We had Brené Brown on, a very sort of prominent American academic and, and thinker and uh, sort of speechmaker on mental health and COVID. And she has a huge following and I think it's got even bigger in the pandemic. But do you find your own mental health to be very impacted by this, if you don't mind such a personal question? Yeah, I've, I've, uh, it's been very challenging. It wasn't until about June or July where I realised how much I was struggling. It was once the, the main restrictions had been released. I think, relaxed rather, I think while we were all as a world shut down, as I said earlier, I was coping and I had a very clear focus every day and I had a reason to get up and I had a job to do. Once we started to unlock and I started to walk around London and see the emptiness and see all my theatres and all our theatres dark, albeit we remained optimistic and we left our lights on, I started to struggle and I started to struggle with the uncertainty. I mean, I work in a world where particularly if you're a producer, it's all about control and controlling who does what, when and how and a date. And, and you, we, before the pandemic, I could tell you 
I could tell you that in two years time at 7pm on that day, that show's curtain would be up because we have very rigid schedules that we, we stick to and we have to in order to hit all our deadlines and to have all that wiped away from you and to have everything you believe in and all the stories you love getting lost in and all the pain and the angst and the terror and the fear around you from from all your co-workers and the artists in particular who did not know what to do with themselves, it, it eventually builds up. And I don't think I broke down in tears until probably about 16, 17 weeks in. And once I started to let go, I haven't really stopped, to be honest. Was it one particular thing that made you, as you say, you kept it all in? Probably successful producers being the, if you could put it in politely, some of the greatest control freaks in the world. And then you said something made it sort of, made, brought it forward for you made, and made you cry. What was it? For me, it was just a very simple moment where I sat outside the stage door of the Wyndham's Theatre where we had Leopoldstadt playing which I would always sit outside that stage door with Tom Stoppard and Patrick Marber, the director. And I sat outside having a coffee and I was the first person that had come back to that coffee shop since shutdown. And it was just me in an empty street looking at the empty theatre. Everything just felt so completely wrong. And, you know, we work in an industry where everything is about bringing people together Everything is about sharing and experience. Everything is about being as close as you can possibly be. That's the business model and that is the social model and that is the cultural model where we come together, we squash together in a room, we squash together in the wings, we squash together in dressing rooms and we are tightly packed. And everything about our industry is wrong for the pandemic. But... In times of crisis and depression and recession and war even, it's always theatre that's been on the cultural front line. We open our doors, even during the Blitz with the bombs going off, to have entertainment, singing, a place for, a place for people to go and release and escape and share a story or hear a song or do a sing-along or whatever, right? And we have been prevented doing the very thing that we genuinely believe we could have done to help this crisis, this world crisis. We've been prevented it. And that feels so completely unnatural. And when you look back in time, I mean, this is the longest shutdown theatre has had in, it, in history. Even in other times of plague, it's never been shut down for this amount of time. So looking at this long road ahead and the road ahead to recovery and the fact that come May, June, July, whatever the months will be next year, you're going to have 50, 60, 70 productions in London alone, all trying to reopen at the same time, all trying to capture the audience's attention, there are so many reasons in front of us to not restart and to not rebuild that actually, funny enough, given there are so many reasons, you've just got to go for it because otherwise you just never will.
Just before we finish, I'd love you to look back, if you wouldn't mind, over the last... One of the things we can do from our distance theatre or lockdown or feeling very starved of that experience in the stalls is to is to talk about great productions we've seen and look back over the years and the loves, the loathes, the hits and the misses. What are the moments that you would say have really shaped the kind of theatre that we will go back to? What stands out in your memory? Well... I've produced over 180 productions myself, so I... I will allow you a couple of your own as long as you have a couple of other people's. I'm going to give a couple of my own first. Um, I think that I have to talk about Jerusalem. Jess Butterworth's Jerusalem with um, starring Mark Rylance, which I plan to actually revive as soon as we can next year. It's an explosion of mythical ideas and beliefs about what England was. All right, so we've got Jerusalem, which we f- we feel that's but that's spoken theatre. What about musicals? Oh, anything by Sondheim. I mean, the thing about me and, mus- me and musicals is I know I am watching an incredible musical or experienced one when I get this tingle up my arms. And it just comes from, it really surprises me. And I, the tingles come either through the music and ideally through the music combined with, of course, narrative. My um, Dreamgirls, which I produced a couple of years ago. Which, yes, it's, I think it's somewhat undersung, great night out kind of musical, actually, if you can undersing, undersing a musical. The, the, the power of the voice, the vocals and the female empowerment story it's so extraordinary to hear those female powerhouses sing those songs. And there's one stretch of about 18 minutes where the lead character, uh, she's called Effie, um, doesn't stop. And she builds and builds and builds and to- towards then the biggest song that's ever written for musical theatre, which is, and I am telling you... That one, um, and it and it's the go most, on, it, go on. We were shortchanged at the back of the stalls, and um, I mean that. I mean, I'm bringing that one back because I ju- I personally just have to hear it again and see it again. Sonia Friedman, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for asking me. And we'd love to hear your thoughts and reflections on that and any memories it may have jolted from the days when you could sit in the stalls. Did you also experience a moment during the pandemic, like Sonia sitting outside her dark theatre, when the enormity of the situation hit you? And as we review our personal year and look back to life before and after it, I'd love to hear what theatre or musical theatre moment stays in your mind. I think I'm going to join Sonia in applauding Stephen Sondheim and the last scene of Merrily We Roll Along because it rolls along backwards, unlike this show, which is probably a good thing all round. We'd love to know what you think. Write to us, radio at economist.com, or you can tweet us at Economist Radio. And don't forget, if you'd like our deep dive on arts and books, you can subscribe to us economist.com for all of our coverage of those and many other of the important things in life.
traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute.